we started several weeks ago a new series we're calling it Signs of Life. And in short, what we're doing is we are really trying to explore various evidences or signs of what it looks like when God shows up, when God moves, when God transforms people's lives, God always leaves little signs behind or evidences of the fact that he's been around, things that he's done things. The greatest sign that we saw the very first week was that God has not abandoned this world to its brokenness, that God has actually sent Jesus into this world to initiate a new work ultimately ending up in a new world. This is what God has done. Uh, what God has also done in the lives of you and I, if you're a Christian here, uh, if you're somebody that God has transformed you, you have been rescued, you've been saved, uh, that there are evidences or signs in your life that you're a different person. Today what we're going to be taking a look at is one of the greatest signs of life in the life of a person that's been transformed or changed is that we worship differently. We worship differently. Last week we looked at community. We view community different. Rather than viewing community as a bunch of people that we hang out with that are just like us, clones of us, that community looks different if you're transformed by the gospel. But also our worship looks different. We're changed as worshipers when the gospel begins to penetrate and transform our hearts. So in short, what I really want to kind of move into is the type of worship that we're going to be focusing on today or an element of worship today is more along the lines of singing, okay? So we'll take a look at the main specific idea of singing as being a part of worship. Now, I know oftentimes when we talk about worship, we talk about worship as being more than singing and we tend to kind of avoid the element of singing but uh, and we focus on sort of the more general overview of what worship is, and I've taught on that a lot. I taught on that just several weeks ago. You can go online. The, uh, the MP3 is available for free download. You can check that out online. But today what I want to focus on specifically is the encouragement or the exhortation that Paul in the New Testament oftentimes speaks to people that are Christians, transformed, changed by the gospel, to sing. That singing is one of the greatest expressions of people that have been radically transformed by the gospel. So we'll begin to take a look at sort of that notion or that idea that we find in the Bible. So in other words, joyful people, I want to lead off with this, joyful people sing. You can be a non-Christian, somebody that doesn't know God, straight up, full-on atheist slash, you know, devil worshiper, and you can have an event that happens in your life or have the anticipation of something good that happens in your life, and you can get happy. You're joyful, you're happy, you're going to sing as a result of that. Now, the reality is all joyful people sing. But people who have been rescued from sin and death uh, really ought to be the ones that are the most joyful. In other words, if salvation, what Jesus has accomplished for us, is the greatest event that can happen in our lives, then would that not trigger the greatest joy? Now, if that's true, okay, kind of get the line of deduction I'm going on here, reasoning the idea, therefore, joyfully redeemed people should be the ones that sing with the most fervency. Would you agree? In other words, if just normal Joe Schmo people in this world that have good events happen to them, you get a raise, you have a baby, all right, you find out you get a brand new job, you find out that someone shows up on your house and they're like, congratulations, you're on Extreme Makeover, home edition. You're like, no way. You know, you become joyful and you start singing, or at least humming, all right? If salvation is the greatest event that could have ever happened to any of us, then we ought to be the most joyful. Now, if that's the case, 
that redeemed, joyfully redeemed people should be the ones that are the most happiest, then we all ultimately ought to be the ones that should sing with the greatest fervency. Yet, in reality, oftentimes, that's just simply not the case. So I want to really try to unpack this and understand why maybe we don't. What are some of the reluctance what's some of the reluctance that we have oftentimes and begin to try to peel back the layers to understand what singing is, why it's important, why it also becomes one of these signs or evidences of life in the New Testament. So with that, I want to jump in. I want to take a look at two specific things this morning, the first of which is we'll just simply ask the questions. First question we'll ask is, what is worship? I really want to try to just unpack kind of a broad understanding of what worship is. In short, I'm just going to describe it like this way I have up here on the screen. That worship that I kind of put up here is actually derived from a word, an English word, worth-shaped. Okay, if you think of worship as being this breakdown of this word, worth and shape or shaped. In other words, it's this idea that whatever we determine to have worth or value, that thing, whatever it is, will shape the posture of our lives. So for example... If for you, the most valuable thing in your life, the thing that you have contributed or attributed the greatest worth to is a vocation, is your job, then you will actually begin to be shaped by that. Your life will change, meaning you will actually start making sacrifices. Let's say, for example, you're married. You got kids. But if job, vocation, a sense of belonging or a affirmation from the job that you get from coworkers, from your boss, whomever, if that is the most highest priority, the greatest value in your life, then you will, your life will then begin to be shaped by that. You will start making sacrifices. You'll come home late. You'll leave early in the morning, which means you won't be able to tuck your kids in bed at night, which means you won't be able to hang out with your wife, which means your marriage will then begin to suffer. Your relationship with your kids will begin to suffer. But that's the price. That's the sacrifice religious language, that's the sacrifice you will pay because what you value, what you have attributed as worthy begins to shape your life. Does this make sense? You guys understand this? You can go down the line. I can give you lots of examples and analogies of this on lots of different levels, but I think you guys get the point. We've talked about this a lot. So the point of the matter is, is that worship is that what we, can, what we view as being worthy, that will then begin to shape us. I'll show you how this worked out in the early church. Acts chapter 2, verses 41 to 47, familiar verse to many of us. I'll read it to you. I kind of bulleted the verse for you guys up here, just kind of consider a couple things. It says in verse 41, it says, those who receive the word, in other words, the gospel, the good news, the word that Jesus is king, that he's not just an angry king, but he's a good king, a loving king that came and paid the ultimate price for his subjects. That those who believe this word, here's what happens. In other words, the most valuable, worthy thing that the early church viewed in their life was King Jesus. So check this out. They began to be shaped, their life, their community, the way they thought, the way they spent their money. Everything was shaped by that which was of highest value, highest worth in their life. In this case, it was Jesus. Take a look at what they did, okay? Evidences. One, it says they were baptized. They, were, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. They, they wanted to study the Bible. It tells us also they had fellowship. They hung out with each other. They spent time with one another. They broke bread. They had meals with each other. In other words, they stopped, slowed down their business of their lives in order to hang out and have meals with other people, talk about Jesus, because Jesus 
who was supreme value in their life, who was shaping the way that they viewed their relationships. They prayed. Awe came upon every soul. They sold their possessions and then redistributed it to those that didn't have much. So check this out. This is amazing when, I, when you just kind of break it down this way. These people loved God, valued Jesus above and beyond everything else. Jesus was what they deemed worthy. Therefore, their lives were shaped in accordance to that. So it could be said like this. They actually worshipped Jesus and thus were shaped. So think about it this way. Anything that we place as high supreme value in our life or thing that we value as worthy more than anything else in our life will have direct effects. So you can put in this very first section up here, those who received, you know, that the idea of vocation or sex or, uh, you know, relationships or power or whatever is of greatest value, then you can put underneath that certain bullets of how that will shape your life. If you love money more than anything else, you'll become cold like money. You'll become uh, heartless like money is, right? You'll become someone that's miserly because you got to figure out ways to hoard it and protect it. And this is what happens. We become shaped by that which we value. I think we all get that point. So the point of the matter is, is that, first of all, everybody worships. All of us have something that it's a supreme value in our lives that actually shapes the way that we live. So if you're looking at your life right now and there's certain areas and certain ways in which you live that you're frustrated about how your life is shaped, there's two ways to go about trying to fix that. A, you can try to determine even more so than ever before to change that, to force that, which is like trying to bend a steel rod. Or you can change it by what you value. You can change it by what you value. Change what's valuable in your life. If you have habits in your life that you are trying desperately to break, remember, we are shaped by what we consider of ultimate value and worth. So I want to jump on to the next thing because we'll begin to take a look more at this idea of singing specifically, how we worship. Ephesians chapter 5 or 17, I want to read this passage to you guys. Uh, it's up there on the screen. I'll read it. Understand what the will of the Lord is and do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit Addressing one another in psalms, hymns, spiritual songs, singing, making melody to the Lord in, with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. So what Paul's saying here is that there are people who are Christians and those that are Christians, as they uh, are walking with God and the idea of being filled with the Spirit is the same idea as being a Christian, walking with God, walking in submission to God. Paul's saying that when this happens, one of the things that you'll begin to take a look at is rather than being drunk with wine, come back to that second, you'll be filled with the Spirit uh, and you will address one another with psalms, hymns, spiritual songs. In other words, what Paul is saying here is that one of the direct effects of those who are being transformed by the Holy Spirit is singing. We sing. You will sing. That, it will be a natural result of what will transpire or take place if you are walking in the Spirit. Now, quick question, kind of side note. Why does Paul sort of make this analogy between being filled with the Holy Spirit and then being drunk. It seems kind of like a strange analogy. But the reality is, is that on the day of Pentecost, if you remember, when the church sort of was, was launched, um, we're told that they, when they were filled with the Holy Spirit, um, there were people that came around and says, why is everybody drunk? It's 9 o'clock in the morning. You guys shouldn't be drinking this early. And then Peter stands up and says, we're not drunk. So there's something that was going on on that particular occasion that gave the illusion or the idea that somehow there was some sort of 
drunkenness going on. Now, drunkenness, uh, really what happens when someone gets drunk is you'll oftentimes discover is that joy and boldness will be the result. Joy and boldness, all right? So oftentimes, the boldness can lead to public singing, all right? So imagine like barroom scenes, people, you know, with a pint in their hand, and they're like dancing and singing, whereas, you know, like hour before that, they were like quiet and all mellow, but, you know, now they're all excited, you like that like little dance, and the point of the matter is, is, is now drunkenness has actually made them joyful and bold, but also the Holy Spirit makes people joyful and bold. Uh, there is a famous preacher, guy by the name of Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, who did a sermon on this uh, many years ago. The name of the sermon was called Life in the Spirit. On page 20, he basically describes this uh, as a doctor, which is what he was. He was a medical doctor that also became a preacher. Um, he described this as he was studying this, um, trying to understand how is it that there's sort of this uh, relation, correlation between being drunk uh, that leads to joy and boldness and being filled with the Holy Spirit that also leads to joy and boldness. One of the things that, as he was kind of studying this or thinking about this, is he realized that alcohol is actually a depressant. Uh, it's a depressant. In other words, the way that alcohol makes you full of joy and boldness is it makes you, it makes you less aware of your surroundings. It makes you less aware of your reality. So the less aware of your reality you become, the more free you are to have joy and boldness. Whereas the Holy Spirit is the exact opposite. When the Holy Spirit comes upon you and moves over you, he actually is not a depressant, he actually is a stimulant. And when he comes upon you, the way he makes you full of joy and boldness is not by making you less aware of your reality, but the exact opposite, by making you more aware of your reality. Isn't that amazing? That this is what the life of a Christian is. It's not that we move further into a hole where we try to cover our minds and our eyes from the problems out there, the Christian, according to Paul, the more that we are filled with the Holy Spirit, the more that we are aware of the Spirit's presence, the more that we are aware of reality around us, but here's the beauty of it. In other words, we don't become less aware of our trials and tribulations and hardships and things that lead to suffering and pain, but we become more aware of the fact that those things are not, they don't form the perimeter of our lives. Because beyond the, that is the bigger hand picture of God. That God forms the outer perimeter of our lives. Not suffering, not shame, not hardship, not pain. And the more aware that we become of reality, that God is the ultimate reality, that actually leads to a sense of joy and boldness. Have you ever experienced that? Have you been kind of in a place like that where you found yourself troubled, and in pain, and going through a tough time, and the way that you found yourself coming out of that was not by just simply pulling away, hiding your mind from those things, but actually being aware that there's more to the story that you've not yet learned, but now you've just caught a glimpse of that, and you realize, ah, everything's gonna be fine because God's in control of this. This is what Paul, I believe, is basically saying. And one of the results of being filled with the Holy Spirit is we sing. So I'm going to take a look at a couple things that have to do with singing. The first of which is I want to try to unpack the power of singing. That singing actually has a particular form of power over us. Uh, I told you guys past few months I've really been into like studying about revolutions. And um, one of the uh, revolutions I was reading about recently was took place in Estonia. And they actually had a revolution that was called the Singing Revolution. Some of you are like, Estonia who? Uh, 
Estonia is actually a country, and it's an area that at one time was occupied by uh, the Soviets. And then during World War II, it then became occupied by Nazis, and then after World War II, it was occupied, reoccupied by the Soviets. And at some point, at around 1987 to 1991, um, there was sort of this revolution called the Singing Revolution. And it was really kind of unique, because what had happened was hundreds of thousands of Estonians, they would gather publicly, and then they would begin to sing these forbidden patriotic songs. And this had a radical impact and effect upon the morale of the nation. So much so that it had to be suppressed. I mean, I mean the heavy-handed dictators had to come in and suppress that because the music had a tendency to bring about power. Transformation. I'll give you a personal example. Just before I become a Christian, uh, some of you guys know my story. I was, I was brought up as a Catholic, and my parents had divorced, and then my dad had gotten remarried, and uh, once they got remarried, they started going to another church, and the new church that we started going to, I wasn't really excited about going to it. Uh, they made me go up into the high school room, and when I was in the high school room, uh, they, it was, I don't know, about 100, 150 kids in that high school room, and it was, it was filled with God's praises. I had never, ever, ever been in a a service or a group of people that actually sang songs and meant it. I mean, I sang songs in my Catholic youth group growing up, but no one really meant it. It's just like, you gotta sing it. But there was nothing that was like really heartfelt praise. And again, that might have just been my group that I was a part of. But I walked into this room and I was radically transformed. I just, I, I still remember that day. It changed me forever. And I didn't even hear a sermon yet. I didn't even hear the Bible opened yet. I was radically, my heart was already open to God. I wanted to learn more just by what I observed, by what I saw, but what I felt, what I sensed, God was doing something there. Um, One of the greatest American theologians was a guy by the name of Jonathan Edwards. I want to read you a quote of what he had said. Great quote. Uh, He had written a treatise called Religious Affections. Um, He was part of uh, what's called the Great Awakening. Some of you might be familiar with that, part of history in America. He, uh, he had actually written a lot about the Great Awakening. I'm not going to go into the history of it. Uh, but this uh, little article or treatise that he wrote was about the Great Awakening. And he was talking specifically about singing here. I want to read this to you. It's great. Uh, the duty of singing praises to God seems to be appointed wholly to excite and to express religious affections. It's a phrase that we don't really use today. But it's the idea of saying, when we sing, it would seem as if the whole main reason why we sing is to somehow stir up affections, emotions in our heart. But he goes on to say, he says, no other reason can be assigned why we should express ourselves to God in verse rather than in prose and do it with music. These things have a tendency to move our affections. Music has power. Music does something to us. It changes us. It transforms us. We understand what this is about. Most of us have been impacted and affected by music in this way. The second thing I want to notice is the corporate nature of singing. Now, as I read in the verse here earlier, obviously in the book of Ephesians, it describes uh, what they were doing in verse 19. It says, addressing one another in psalms. Uh, Another way that you can describe this is sort of addressing or singing amongst one another. It's this idea of being in a corporate nature, being amongst other people. It's one of the reasons why when we come to church, we come to sing. We come to meet with God. We come to sing his praises. We come to hear what God has to speak to us. And so I think there's a tendency for us especially, and I know that I think we've been kind of swept up into it, even our mindsets as a church as well, is that sort of this idea that when you come and when we sing, it's just you and God. And there, to some degree, there's a truth to that. But there's a larger reality beyond that. 
that yes, God wants to personally affect you and transform you and be your God, but at the same time, that's why we come here as a body and not just simply go for a hike up Madonna and just sing some songs up there while we're listening to our iPods. Because there's something powerful that happens when people get together who love Jesus and who are expectant that God is going to show up and move. There's something very profound that happens. That God intends for this type of singing to be corporate in nature. We do it together. We do it alongside one another. And this is, seems to be the way in which God oftentimes sets this up. Have you ever heard someone say that in corporate worship, we shouldn't come to get, we should come to give? And, you know, the reality is, to some degree, I, I want to basically say, I think we may have even said that in the past. And honestly, I think now, little time, I think that's a wrong statement. Here's why I mean. To some degree, I think the reason why we oftentimes say that is because we want to try to uh, help us as followers of Jesus to not just simply be consumers of goods and services. That's not good. In other words, there's a tendency for us to look at church, look at gathering together, look at this thing that we call the church as being a place where we come to just consume, meaning we don't really take ownership of it, we don't invest in it, we treat it more like a hotel room or a rental car. But the idea of saying we shouldn't come to receive, we should come to give, really doesn't necessarily apply to God. And here's why. We don't have anything really to give to God. Nothing that God needs of us. I mean, we got to be foolish to think that somehow when we praise, we're like adding something to God. Now, does God take delight in the praises of his people? Absolutely. But we're not adding anything to God. We're not adding anything in terms of intrinsic value or worth to him. But instead, the picture of the Bible is that when we come to God, we come empty-handed. We come to receive. Think of it as coming to a banquet. Think of it coming to like a huge spread of really good food laid out, hanging out with people that you can just enjoy it with, and you're hungry. You haven't eaten for a long time, and you're starving. This is the idea that really when we gather, when we come, we should come with this idea that God uh, has the goods to not just simply feed, but ultimately to satisfy and to keep me wanting to come back to him for more because he will always satisfy. In other words, we want to be deep consumers of God. That's very good. That's biblical. That's how God wants us to live. And God designs that we do this corporately as a body, coming together as a family, loving, serving, partaking, digging in, of God, because God makes himself available, shockingly enough. This is what God does. So the first thing, again, we looked at is sort of the power of singing. Secondly, we'll take a, we looked at the corporate nature of singing. Third, I want to take a look at the passion in singing. And what he goes on to say uh, in this particular verse, actually in the Amplified Bible, translates it like this, Ephesians chapter 5, 19. It says, making melody with your heart, with all of your heart, I should say, to the Lord. In other words, it's this idea of not giving God a half heart, partial heart. It's all of your heart. With all of your heart to God. Um, Psalm 33, verses 1 through 3 says this. It's this idea of passion. I want you to listen to the words, the description of these words that are here and how it describes the corporate nature, the united, the gathering type of worship that goes on. 
It goes on, it describes it like this, uh, 33 verse 1. It says, shout for joy. No one can shout as a whisper. I mean, you shout. It's shouting's loud. Amen? Shouting is loud. You can't shout quietly. So shouting involves some level, some degree of excitement, of passion. It goes on and says, uh, shout for joy in the Lord. You are righteous. Praise is fitting of the upright. Give thanks to the Lord. And then it says, with a lyre, uh, that's an instrument, make melody in your, to him with the harp of ten strings. Again, so there's instruments going on here. He says, sing to him a new song. Play skillfully on strings with loud shouts. Loud shouts, all right? Not like quiet whispers. Now, there's a place for quiet whispering, I would imagine, as well. But in the congregation, what he's saying is that, that there is some level of passion that's to be involved, to be part of corporate nature, port, corporate gathering of singing, of worshiping to this great God. And that's also to be matched by a sense of wholeness, meaning not just giving our hearts in partiality, but giving our hearts in totality to God. Completely to God. The word skillfully, uh, you know, it's the idea of you know, playing well, but think of it this way as well, playing whole, complete. It's not partial. It's not sort of unskilled playing. It's skilled playing. It's one of the reasons why it's important to have good, skilled musicians. A voice is a skilled, it's an instrument that we sing. Now, some of us, you know, some of us are like, I don't have a very good voice. That's okay, because when you're in a body of people singing together, all of these voices come together as one big voice. Have you been in that situation where maybe you're sitting next to someone and they have a phenomenal voice and you start singing and then in your mind you're actually thinking like, pretty good. Like, <laughs> the, the problem is it's really not you. It's, it, it's you sort of tucked underneath the notes of the person next to you who's actually really good. Now if that person stops singing for a moment then you hear your voice and you're like, oh my gosh, what's that horrible sound? Like, the AC is going out in this room or something, you know? It's like, that's your voice. And the reality is, um, when, when the corporate nature or a body comes together and we sing together, it's, it's one voice. And so that's why it's not a matter of like, I gotta somehow get voice lessons to come to church and sing. Now, the idea is that the people that are leading should be playing skillfully, should be practicing, should be ready to go. But here, see, here's the thing. Sometimes when we come, we don't sing to God with all of our heart because all of our hearts aren't here. There's a tendency for us sometimes to view church, view gathering, view corporate gathering together of a body, of a church. It's just something we kind of add to our to-do list to do throughout the week. It's just sort of the weekly priority thing that we do. It's one of the reasons why sometimes. I mean, we can come in late, very late, and our hearts are scattered. We've been thinking about lots of things, maybe arguing with our kids, arguing with our spouses on the way to church. Our minds are everywhere but here. So physically we may be here, but mentally, emotionally, we're not really here. We're not singing to God with all of our heart because we're not really all here. So the thing is, is that we need to understand that there is a sense in which uh, there's a passion in singing, okay? The fourth thing I want to take a look at is the history of singing. Now, throughout the Bible, the Bible portrays a picture of singing. I'll read a couple of verses for you to kind of understand this. In Job chapter 38, Job, God is actually... Uh, quizzing Job, and he asked Job a series of questions. One of the questions that Job asks God is he says, where are you when I lay the foundation of the earth? And then he adds, he says, when the morning stars sing together. In other words, when God laid the foundations of the earth, these angels sang. 
they actually sang to the glory of God when God laid the foundations of the earth. So it's kind of hard for us to even envision or imagine, but this is God speaking here. We weren't there. Nobody was there. God was. God's like, I saw it. I heard it. It was phenomenal. Once I laid the foundations, the angels sang. It was awesome. God asked Job, where were you? You weren't there. Um, Exodus chapter 15. <laughs> Exodus 15, when God rescued the people of Israel out of slavery. He took them through the Red Sea. He parted the Red Sea. And when this happened, immediately following that, Exodus 15, it says, the Moses and the Israelites, they sang a song to God. So right there on the spot, they composed music and sang a song to God. Right there on the spot. Why? Because joyful people sing. That's what happened. That's what took place. They were redeemed. They saw this great move of God, not just simply in creation, but as the angels did, but in redemption, as the Hebrews did, as God brought them through. Book of Revelation 15, verse 3, it says, they sing, or they sing a new song, the song of Moses, the song of the Lamb, saying, great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God Almighty, just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. So the picture that's going on here in this particular setting is this is talking about the church, that at some point in the future, God's going to redeem, ransom, bring together all of the church together. And guess what we're going to be doing in heaven? We'll be singing. It's amazing. He actually gives us the lyrics of the song. So you guys who can think and read, you can study this, prepare, be ready for the song so that when the first song gets sung, you hear this, you're like, oh, I know the words of that song. I studied it. Pastor told me to remember it. I remember it. Now I know the words. So the point of the matter is, this is the song they sang or will sing in the future. So we see past, we see in the history of the people of Israel, we see in heaven, the new heavens, the new earth, that there will be singing. This will be, in very large degree, what will be taking place. And then the final thing I want to take a look at is motivation for singing, because I can finish up right here and just be like, look, at the end of the day, happy people sing, redeemed people should be the happiest people, therefore, redeemed people should be the ones that sing the loudest, so therefore, make sure that you all sing. Because I just proved it all to you biblically. The Bible talks about us singing, therefore sing. So some of you will actually be like, I'm going to take them up on that challenge. I'm going to do that. So you will like somehow in your mind be like, I'm going to do that. Every time we sing, every time someone gets up there, strikes a guitar, I'm going to sing loud. I'm going to sing passionately. I'm going to do all these things that he said because I'm just going to do it. And what will end up happening is one of two things. You will come back to church maybe next week, let's say, for example, and you will have had the worst week of your life. Right? I mean, literally the sky's falling. All right? Everything's going wrong in your life, and you're not going to feel like singing. And you'll come, and you'll be like, oh, man, the pastor said to sing. I don't feel like singing. He said, good Christians sing. I must not be a good Christian. I must be a failure. And then you will live a life going forward from that point in full despair, feeling like you're not doing what you should be doing, even though you know it's right, even though you know it's biblical, even though you know Good Christians do this. You will feel full of despair because you're not doing it. Or you go the opposite direction and be like, I'm going to do this. And you've got maybe more determination, more ability to be able to do it. Just hanker down and do it. And you're the type of person that might be like, all right, I'm going to do everything you said. I'm going to sing loudly. I'm going to sing passionately. I'm going to raise my hands. I'm going to get on my knees. I'm going to do all these things because that's what good Christians do. And you're going to do it. But you're going to do it in such a way that you're going to be looking at other people who aren't raising their hands like you are or aren't on their knees like you are, or aren't as passionate as you are, and guess what? You're gonna get critical and judgmental of those people. You know what? That's actually more of an abomination than the person who says, I really wanna worship, but I don't really feel like it. My heart's there, but I just don't 
feel like I have the ability to do it. That's more of an abomination because really, you're prideful. You're arrogant. Don't come into churches and look at people who aren't singing the way that you are and judge them and criticize them. You have no idea what type of stuff people are going through. Don't be judgmental. Don't look down upon people. So here's my question. How do we find the motivation to sing? We know it's right. We know it's transformative. We know there's power. We know that when we do it, something powerful, something transformative happens. How do we do it in such a way that brings God great glory and brings us into that beauty? Well, the way that we are able to do that is what we need to basically be able to understand and need to be able to see is a little bit of the story of what we talked about earlier. That from the beginning, as we said, singing has been a part of the ongoing work of God from the very beginning, before he even created everything. Paul tells us in Romans chapter eight that when it happened, something profoundly horrible took place throughout all creation. And so now, rather than singing the way that God had created all things and wired all things to do, now, rather than singing, all creation groans. All creation is under a curse. It groans. It's not what it should be. It's not entering into the beauty, not entering into the life, not entering into the rhythm, the harmony that God had created all things to be brought into. The Bible says the reason why is in Genesis chapter 3, what happened was when God created Adam and Eve first, he created them to be part of the singing, part of the worship, part of the celebration. But when Adam and Eve basically checked out and then began to move their own way, it was their way of basically emancipating themselves from the image of God, to emancipate themselves from God's presence, to say we want to be our own gods. We want to basically live according to our own beat. We want to create our own harmony, our own music. But what ends up happening throughout mankind is not music, but dissonance. That's the world we live in today. It's a world where there's nothing but dissonance. Every once in a while, we catch a glimpse of beautiful music. We stop, we pause, we want to hear it, we want to enter into it. And just as soon as we stop and pause, it dissipates. On the cross, what we see is Jesus. Jesus throughout all eternity who had been with the Father, singing the praises of his Father, loving his Father, honoring his Father. You know what Jesus was doing? He was demonstrating the immense worth of God, of the Father. The Father was doing the same thing, honoring the Son. They were honoring the Holy Spirit. There was nothing but honor and praise going on amongst the Godhead. And what you see on the cross is something absolutely profound because on the cross, Matthew chapter 27, verse 46, it says this, in about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, that is my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And on the cross, what you see is Jesus groaning. What you see on the cross is a God who doesn't just simply give us advice and say, live according to this because it's right. What you see on the cross is a God who says, no, your life is in dissonance. It's in disarray. It's broken. It's fractured. There's disharmony all around you. You're out of beat with the rhythm of the way I intended for things to be. That's why your life is broken. That's why your life feels like it's crushed. 
because of the weight and the oppression of sin and heaviness and brokenness that's all around this world and upon you. But on the cross, what you see is the Son of God coming into the place where we live, taking upon himself the weight of the sin of the world. And to that end, Jesus joins with the rest of broken creation and the rest of you and I who live our lives in that valley of groaning and he himself groans. Why? Because this is the way that Jesus created, God created the way so that you and I who live our lives in perpetual groaning, perpetual hurt, shame, destruction, oppression, that God would take the oppression off of us and leverage it upon himself so that you and I, who live our lives in groaning, can be given a new song. To the degree that you see the son was silenced on the cross in his groaning, it allows us to see that God has created a way for us who are in our groaning and in our pain and in our broken lives can be given a new song. To the degree that you see that God did this for you, not because he had to, but because he loves you. To the degree that you see that Jesus came not simply to bring judgment upon people that are out of harmony, out of sync with his plan, with his life, but rather instead to come to bear their sin, to bear their judgment, because he loves you. To the degree that you see that he did that to give you new life, you know what that does? That rewires your heart. That shows you that you are loved. And if you know that you know that you are loved with this such degree of love by someone who is so profoundly worthy, that will change us from merely being spectators of God to being drawn into being worshipers. And when we worship God, we will be shaped like him and we'll sing. People that are joyful sing. People that are saved should be the most joyful. Therefore, people that are saved should be the ones that sing the loudest. One of the signs or evidences that we have been changed, that we have passed from death to life, is that we sing joyfully because we have a God that has done the most profound work in our lives to not only rescue us from our false gods, but to reconcile us back into relationship with him. We're gonna finish with some songs of worship. Guys are gonna come on up and lead us. We'll have communion available in the back. We have these little three areas back there where the candles are at. I encourage you, maybe as a family uh, or as a community group or as a group of friends or people that know each other, maybe other people that don't know each other, to take a communion together as a family, as a community. Um, if you're not a Christian, we just encourage you to maybe not, to not partake of communion. Uh, if you want to know Jesus, then what you can do is pray and ask Jesus to come into your heart, to wash you, to cleanse you. But communion really is something that we do as a family. Uh, we want you to be part of that family, but that family begins with submission and recognition of who Jesus is. But here's the most profound thing. When we recognize Jesus as the king that he is, and we submit ourselves to him, and we humble ourselves before him, what we find is that he's not a king that squashes us, that steps on us, doesn't rub our noses in our shame and our guilt. He's a king that actually picks us up and calls us his sons and his daughters. 
This is absolutely amazing what God has done and how he's ransomed and rescued us. I want to invite you into that. We're going to sing. We'll have some people available. I'd love to encourage you to be prayed for. If there are things that are going on in your life, you need prayer for anything that's happened inside. Uh, We'll have some people available to pray for you. Maybe you're dealing with suffering or sickness or hurt or just your heart's suffering and hurt. You need prayer. We want to have some people pray for you. We have some rugs in the front. If you want to just get on your knees, sit down. It's a little bit more comfortable than the ground. Just to worship God. We want to invite you in to sing to God, to sing to him, to love him. One of the things that we do oftentimes, we raise our hands. It's like a child. We kind of emulate the picture of like a a son or a daughter looking up to their mom or dad and just saying, you know, hold me. It's this picture of like us looking to our father saying, carry me, hold me. We bend our knees before God. We get on our faces and kneel down before him as as a posture, a physical posture that represents our hearts, that basically says our hearts are in harmony with who God is, with what God has revealed himself. So we humble ourselves, the posture of our body on our knees before such a great king. So I'm going to invite you in to worship, to sing, to join. Not just join with the congregation here, but it's amazing to join with all creation that waits, that longs for. This isn't just Jesus entering in your life and giving you personal warm fuzzies and making you feel good. This is God inviting you into a cosmic transformation that God will not just change you, but change all things, transform all things. This is what's so amazing about our God. And he loves you, invites you in. I'm going to pray. Let's sing. I'm going to invite you to join, to sing along. Jesus, thank you for the cross. Thank you for what you've demonstrated to us. So God, we want to even now humble ourselves before you. God, we want to confess that maybe in some ways we've lost the sense of awe of who you are. God, so we come to church and we're bored. God, we want to confess that. That's, that's, that's not okay. We become bored before a king that's so profoundly beautiful. God, what we need is to see more of our reality. We need to see more of you. We need the Holy Spirit's work in this place, in our hearts, upon us as a body, to reveal to us more of your greatness. So do that now, we pray, as we sing.